Welcome to the Full Fact Podcast, where we fight bad information one fact at a time. I'm Alexis Conran, and in this episode, we'll be discussing several stories that the Full Fact team have been looking into, including testing numbers, of course. And for our main story in this podcast, we'll be looking at the death figures. What are the official figures, quote-unquote, and what are the true figures? And for that, we will be joined by Anthony Masters, who's Statistical Ambassador at the Royal Statistical Society. And of course, we'll be ending up with your questions with Ask Full Fact at the end of the podcast. Now, it is time to say hello and welcome back to Full Fact Editor Tom Phillips. What have you been busy looking up this week? A wide range of things. So there's, we've looked into one thing, which is um, there's a claim that was circulating uh, that a shipment of PPE uh, had to be destroyed at the port of Dover because illegal immigrants were sneaking in inside the shipment and therefore contaminating it. There is absolutely no evidence that any such thing happened in a fairly terse and unambiguous statement. A Home Office spokesperson told us these claims are totally false. Um, So, yeah, if that's something that you see circulating on Facebook, take it with uh, a pinch of salt, to say the least. Where did this start? It's always fascinating to see where these things grow and how they get shared. Was there photographic evidence? Was it sort of hearsay? My mate told me there was some people down at the... In Dover. I mean, how did these? How did this story start? This particular claim, it was a screenshot of a piece of text, which is a format that we're very familiar with. And right. where did that initial text come from? No idea. Right. Uh, like this, this is a huge thing you see online, and you know, I'm sure all of the listeners will have seen this themselves. Like Facebook posts or screenshots forwarded on WhatsApp, what have you. That like you just go like, okay, this is. A screenshot of a bit of text. Where did that text come from? Who said it initially? Completely unknown. And obviously, if you don't know where it came from, it makes it even harder to check it out. There weren't any pictures or anything like that. It was just, this happened. You won't see this in the mainstream media. I mean, yeah, there's a reason you won't see it in the mainstream media is because there's no evidence it happened. I do love that claim uh, that you do hear. Oh, yeah, and the mainstream media won't tell you this. Yes, because it's a complete fabrication that has nothing to back it up whatsoever. Next up, I know you've been looking at, uh, well, I think everybody has been looking at this, but this was the testing update. Matt Hancock announced that not only did he meet his 100,000 tests per day, he smashed it with 122,000 tests per day. Now, everyone has been looking through those figures. I'm sure you have. What did you find out? So he claimed there'd been 122,000 tests and that therefore they'd hit their 100,000 test target. Really important part of this, uh, over 27,000 of those tests were home tests that were counted because they'd been posted out to people. Another 13,000 odd were tests that had been sent out to satellite sites. These weren't tests that had been taken, that had been completed and processed in the lab. They were just tests that had been sent out. So whether or not that actually counts as hitting the target is questionable. The key thing, particularly about those home tests, as we wrote in our article on this, there is several experts told us genuine concerns that these tests may not be as effective as ones administered by trained professionals, because these are quite difficult tests to administer to yourself. And so there's a chance that a significant number of those home tests will actually be void or unreliable because they may not get the right kind of sample that you need. So whether or not those tests that have just been sent out, they haven't been sent back, they haven't been processed count, that's a very questionable thing. It's also worth saying that since then, even by their own numbers, including those tests that are being sent out, they only hit the 100,000 target for two days. 
days, and since then it has fallen back way below the 100,000 mark. A lot of experts are saying to us, like, the 100,000 target, the focus on that is a distraction. It's irrelevant. That what really matters is getting the pipeline of testing working so that tests can come from the people who need them and get processed and get back. That that's the whole thing. It's not just this theoretical capacity for it, that it's actually ensuring the tests are happening is the thing that really matters and is going to matter in the future as we move to the sort of tracing approach that we are going to need to exit from the lockdown. Where do we get the testing numbers from? Is it just one source, uh, Public Health England or the government? And are we able to get more accurate numbers in the sense that can we get numbers from labs, for example? So you're only getting a number of a test carried out if you have got a result to declare rather than a test that you've shipped out. These numbers are collated by the government. They're collated from different health bodies around the country. Um, So as I think we've said before, there was an issue that Northern Ireland weren't reporting their testing data in the same way. So the figures for the UK didn't necessarily include Northern Ireland in a way you could compare uh, and things like that. It is a problem that is not just about the testing issue, is that in a situation like this, very often the government are the ones making the claims and they're the only ones who actually have access to the information. This is why it's important that they are very clear about exactly what they mean. The thing we've seen is that both for the initial 25,000 tests and the 100,000 tests, the promises are made using language that doesn't mean the same thing. Is it capacity? Is it the number of people tested? Is it the number of tests carried out? Those are all different numbers. Thanks very much, Tom. Now, for our main topic today, we're going to talk about the coronavirus death figures. Recently, we have been told it's a bad idea idea to compare ourselves to other countries. As a lay public, we've all had to become experts in reading, interpreting statistical charts, something that was just a little bit unfair. Uh, So uh, helping me through this part of the show, I'm very glad to have another fact checker from Full Fact, Leo Benedictus. And also joining us is Anthony Masters, Statistical Ambassador at the Royal Statistical Society. Welcome to you both. Leo, let's start with your article, The Official Death Figures. What are the official ones, quote unquote, and what are the true death figures and why is there a a disparity between them? Yeah, I mean, you're right to put inverted commas around both those words. Um, I I think people probably have started to get a feel for those phrases. We've heard them quite a lot of the time. And and my impression is that mostly when people say the official death figures, they mean the ones that get announced in the daily press conferences by the government and mostly what are reported in the newspapers. But you're right, we've seen quite a lot of reporting about how those numbers aren't the true figures that that usually the the claims are that the true figures are going to be much higher than those. And there are quite a lot of reasons, indeed, why the true figures probably are higher than those. And there is a a general misconception, is there not, that uh, when people are looking at the daily numbers that are announced at two o'clock every day, I think most people would assume that those are the numbers of people who lost their lives the day before. And yet that's not strictly accurate, is it? No, it's not. A really important thing to remember here is that before the pandemic started, we didn't have daily announcements of of people dying. You know, this this hasn't been a normal part of any society to see exactly how many people died from from all the different things that people die from. But once the pandemic started, that became really important because it's a fast moving situation and we need to understand what's happening. So very quickly, hospitals um, began to report the number of people who were dying uh, with COVID, and those numbers were reported by the government. 
and in the early days it was it was single figures it was it, these were small numbers so again i think the, the idea of a margin for error uh, of a day or two and how many people it might be didn't matter so much but over time of course really awfully it started to be very large numbers of people and also the number of complex cases has probably risen too so when a, when somebody dies in a hospital they can give the government the number or public health england the number right away but if they do that before they've informed the family or before they've got the results of a test back or before indeed they've had time to fill it in on the computer because they're very busy helping people it can be difficult for them so there's always a delay um and in fact you're right those daily numbers reflect numbers of people dying often a week or more before so that's one important uh, thing to consider yeah why are we getting those delays is it because the government are waiting for a death certificate to be signed actually that is the key thing to look at here because everybody who dies gets a death certificate and so eventually once we've got all the death certificates together we can actually see how many people have died it remains complicated sometimes how many of them died from COVID-19 but we can see what the total numbers are and then we can compare that to the total numbers that we'd expect to be dying and see if there's a big difference. I want to bring Anthony uh, into this. Anthony, do you despair as a statistician that all of a sudden you have journalists like myself and members of the public going on to some beautifully designed websites, by the way, with some amazing charts and interactive charts, but actually we don't quite understand what we're looking at. The basic armchair statistician edict is, is one number bigger than the other? Is this curve steeper than the other? I mean, the the, the, the pitfalls are numeral. Uh, the, the Looking at total number of deaths instead of deaths per million, uh, looking at numbers of infections without looking at the number of tests. Do you sit there and quietly scream into a pillow sometimes <laughs> it is quite difficult for like particularly sites which aggregate data to actually host all that necessary information so for instance like you would think a number oh you know COVID-19 deaths that should be quite a simple thing to talk about well it's the number of people who died with the virus but of course some people might think well that's not the right number we need to look at actually how many people died due to the virus so the virus being the underlying cause of death and most of the figures are reported about people who have tested positive for the virus. So international comparability becomes very challenging. In the Netherlands, looking at figures published on their Health Institute's website, you can see it's quite clear that the death figures they're passing out are for people who have tested positive of the virus and died in hospital. Whereas if you compare it to Science Samo, which is the uh, health institute in Belgium, you can see that actually these are deaths everywhere, not just in hospital, and also include deaths where a doctor suspects that someone has had the virus, even if they haven't had a positive lab confirmation. And that leads to problems when people just go, okay, well, the confirmed number from this country in deaths is higher than this one. And it's actually some of these countries are not counting it in the same way, even though the measure itself, how many people have died from COVID-19, sounds rather simple. Do we know how we are counting these figures? And also, we say that we can't do a side-by-side comparison, as you just beautifully explained there. But... For example, in a country that is similar size to us, similar culture to us, if you take Germany, for example, even if we don't do an exact side-by-side comparison, can we say, for example, that they are going to end up with a lower death toll than we are? 
I mean, can we make those broad strokes or do you think it's even dangerous to do those kind of comparisons? There's two connected issues there. So for us, prior to uh, 29th of April, the daily figures that Leo mentioned, which have been piled by the Department for Health and Social Care, were just positive test results uh, within hospitals. So we, we were we were reporting it like the Netherlands do. After the 29th of April, we started reporting all lab-confirmed deaths in all places, so including in, in care homes. Those figures are really good in terms of how timely they are, but the main constraint, as you've already identified, is that it's based on the date of record and not the date of death, which is probably more useful for studying the pandemic and how it's changing. The issue is not that the figures themselves are incomparable, it's that the interpretation we're putting on them may not be as simple as people would like it to be. Leo, you've been trawling through the uh, Office of National Statistics, their figures that they are putting together about the excess deaths. Tell us a little bit more about how they put those together. And in comparison, there's a sort of a five-year comparison, isn't there, where where we get the average number of deaths. I mean, has that historically shifted as much as we are seeing it shift with the coronavirus outbreak? That is, I think, very much the thing to look at because because we have seen a shift. The Office of National Statistics, they, they cover England and Wales, so not the whole of the UK, but they collect death certificates from all over England and Wales and they gather them together to release weekly numbers on the number of people who've died and registered to have died in those weeks. Um, And actually, we saw a few people online claiming that in the first 12 weeks of this year, the numbers for 2020 were nothing special. They didn't show a very big rise in the number of deaths um, compared with the last five years, the average of those years. And that was about right after 12 weeks of 2020. But what we've seen since then has been really extraordinary and shocking. We've seen a very, very big rise in the number of people dying. Now, the death certificates have some information about what people died from, um, and they've mentioned COVID-19, particularly in the later weeks they started to mention COVID-19, so we can count how many people died with the disease. And that gives some sort of indication uh, that, yeah, we're seeing a very, very large rise in the number of deaths um, in the spring of this year quite 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 above anything we've seen in the last five years or or really much longer than that we have been told that the number that we are going to end up looking at to see uh, the effect of covid19 on any nation is that that excess uh, mortality rate we've just been talking about how soon do you think we're going to have a clear picture i mean even the ons figures are a few weeks behind because it takes so much time. When I asked uh, Professor David Spiegelhalter about this for the article and I asked him when he thought we'd be able to make comparisons between the UK and other countries, he said, ask me in December. So I think I'd go with his view on that. Anthony, I'm going to uh, ask you the final question of this section, being the statistician, and I'd hate to put you on the spot, but what we have been uh, talking about uh, recently in all the papers, the press, the the media, is that the UK have the highest death toll in Europe. Statistically speaking, can we say that that is correct? Not with confidence. International comparisons of this kind really should proceed with caution and without prejudice. What we need to consider is that using death star-sized air quotes, the official figures are for lab-confirmed COVID-19 tests. Now, that depends on the number of tests that people are doing. It depends on the accuracy of those tests, so how many false negatives does that test produce. 
I'd have to agree with Sir David that the best course of action is to look at excess deaths months into the future rather than trying to form a macabre league table now. Anthony, uh, thank you very much for your time. That's Anthony Masters, Statistical Ambassador, Royal Statistics Society, and our very own fact-checker, Leo Benedictus, who's been writing uh, the article on the death figures, which you can find uh, on the Full Fact website. Just head to fullfact.org. Now, it's time for uh, the last part of the podcast, which is Ask Full Fact. Remember, you can send your questions. Uh, We like to play them out on the show. So record a little piece of audio on your phone and email it to us, podcast at fullfact.org. Or you can type it. It's more fun to send an audio clip. Um, Having said that, we've both got type questions. There are two questions today. Uh, And I have with me Deputy Editor Claire Milne to help me answer these questions. Claire, welcome to the show. Hi, Alexis. Thank you. So the first one we have is sort of an, an amalgamation of plenty of questions that have asked the same thing. But the basic question is, can the over 70s leave the house? And I think this was prompted by a little spat that the health secretary had with the Sunday Times last Sunday. A little bit of confusion between um, the 70s being clinically vulnerable or clinically extremely vulnerable. So I'm going to hand over to you. Can the over 70s leave the house? As you say, there's there's quite a lot of confusion around the various terms that are, are going around clinically vulnerable, clinically extremely vulnerable, who's in those categories and what that all really means. Um, and I think that is what has, has perhaps prompted a lot of these questions that we received. So obviously at the moment there are rules around all of us leaving the house. Um, We have to adhere to social distancing, we can only go out um, for one form of exercise a day or if we need you know food shopping, if there's a medical need, that kind of thing. So as far as that goes, that obviously counts the over 70s as well. Um, The over 70s um, are also included in the government's list of clinically vulnerable people. Now, that doesn't mean that they necessarily have to adhere to any other special rules above and beyond the social distancing um, and and staying at home that we're all doing. Um, But it does mean that it's recommended that they stick to it more strictly and that they try and minimise their contact with other people who are outside of their household. Now, on top of that, there is um, that other group that I mentioned, um, clinically extremely vulnerable people. And this is a group that has been told that broadly they, they shouldn't leave the house until the end of June um, and that they should they should try and minimize their contact with others, even including right. those that they are living with in, in their household. Um, and I think that this is where this confusion has possibly come from about over 70s broadly not being allowed to, to leave the house. Um, this clinically extremely vulnerable group that has been told that they should try and stay inside as much as they can um, includes people with, with specific cancers, with um, severe long-term respiratory conditions, people who've received organ transplants, that kind of thing, which means that they might be particularly susceptible um, to, to catching um, the new coronavirus and to getting it quite severely. Um, and if you're in that category, then you should have received a letter from the NHS informing you that, that that's the category that you're in and that there are these extra rules that you should follow. Um, so there may be some people who are over the age of 70 who are in that category, but it doesn't mean that automatically all over 70s are. Our next question comes from Sam. 
And uh, it refers to this. On Tuesday, the 5th of May, Gary Lineker posted a picture on Twitter showing a number of different accounts posting the same message. The accounts condemn the media for criticising the government's COVID-19 response and defend the government for doing its best in this challenging time. So Sam has asked us, is the government using bots to spread its narrative on social media? And if they are, is this allowed? Yeah, so this is this is another instance um, that we've seen of, of people concerned that the bots are being used by the government. We've spoken about this in, in previous weeks. Um, and in, in this case, as you say, there were uh, various accounts on Twitter that were all sharing a broadly similar message. Now, this was um, a message that we'd seen um, circulating on, on Facebook and then moving to Twitter, so jumping from, from platform to, to, to platform. Um, however, we haven't seen any evidence that this is, is any sort of coordinated bot activity at all. Um, the the accounts that are, are sharing the message have very little in common. Um, they're all created at, at different dates, had tweeted about different types of topics before before sharing this particular post. Um, and also, they all took different approaches to how they shared it. So some of them it was a simple, seemed to be a simple copy and paste. Some of them added um, their, their own thoughts and opinions alongside it. Some people um, tagged in journalists um, that they, they thought should see the message as well. And all that suggests that these were were not bots sharing this, this message. Um, there were also actually relatively few accounts that we saw um, sharing this post on, on, on Twitter. Um, and, and if it had been bot activity, it's likely that there would have been a lot more. Are there any basic telltale signs of a, of a bot account? Yeah, so there are certainly some things that, that you can look at and that we did in this in this case. Um, so there are things like looking at the date that the account sharing the message has been created. If there is some sort of coordinated bot campaign that's going to be sharing a message that's in favour of a, a group or an organisation, whatever it is, it, it's possible that they would have all been created around about the same date. So as I said, in this case, um, all of these accounts that we saw sharing the message were created at different dates. Um, and you can also look at the types of topics that they've been, been been tweeting about or posting about prior to the messages that you're particularly interested in. So in this case, this message about about journalism um, and the media's approach to to the government's strategy. Um, And as I said, again, we saw that they were talking about different topics prior to sharing this tweet. So again, suggesting that in this case, um, they weren't necessarily bots. Excellent. Um, Claire, as always, thank you very much for joining me. That's Claire Milne, Deputy Editor at Full Fact. And that's it. That's our podcast done. Uh, Thank you for listening to the Full Fact podcast. Uh, You can uh, get previous episodes and any future episodes on Acast, iTunes, Spotify and everywhere else you can think of. And be sure to subscribe so that the latest episode will be ready on your device every Friday morning. And oh, leave us a review. It always helps.